Luke 24, 1 through 12. Mixing it up, confusing myself. Um, 24, 1 through 12, it says this. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking, this, taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled, stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they did, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they, they told these things to the 11 and to the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women who were with him that told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by the cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He'd be seated. Um, it's the reading of the word of God this morning. Today seems obvious that we're gonna talk about Jesus today. But I want to point out to you that lots of people talk about Jesus. People talk about Jesus all over the world. It's not something that's just um, significant to Christians, like Jews recognize Jesus. People, and I don't mean ethnically Jewish, I mean people that, that subscribe their life to the religion of Judaism. They see Jesus as a historical figure, as a, a rabbi that was a radical rabbi that moved people into a different way of generosity and sacrifice and giving of oneself. Um, they also see him as a radical rabbi that had a false claim as a Messiah. That's what the Jewish followers would see, Muslims would see him as a prophet, as the second greatest prophet in their book and in the Quran. They would see him as Isa, a prophet that um, is, is viewed very favorably in their texts and in their, in their belief system. Hindus, some Hindus even recognize Jesus as one of the incarnations or reincarnations of Vishnu. Now, Vishnu had a various amount of reincarnations. Some even think he was a fish at some point. Um, atheists and agnostics, even though they claim to not even recognize a God, you find them talking about Jesus and recognizing this historical figure who presented a style and standard of morality that many people, that they would even recognize many people should follow. Even non-believers, some that might even be in this room, non-Christians, might see Jesus as the Christian errand boy or the crutch or the butler for those that profess faith in him. Sometimes they might even iconicize him as this American flag-wearing, bandana-wearing Jesus, you know, like this God of our country here in the United States. C.S. Lewis, famous author, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote many, many books. Used to say that there was a, you've heard me say this often, used to say there was a great trilemma of who Jesus was, that he was either a liar, everything he said was, he was just a good liar. Um, he was a lunatic, he was a crazy person, or that everything he said was true and he was in fact Lord. Today, I'm not gonna talk about Jesus that would probably re receive applause from any other 
religious background. I'm not gonna talk about Jesus in a way that an agnostic or an atheist would agree. I'm not gonna talk about Jesus in a way that would qualify him as merely the supreme being over this great American country. We're gonna talk about Jesus as seeing him as Lord and seeing him that there is an empty grave. If we were to go to Jerusalem, there's not a, there's not a body in that grave, but there is, it might be a vacant grave, but there is not a vacant throne. We're gonna talk about that this morning. There's an opportunity for us to celebrate that, an opportunity for us to lean in and hear that from the word today and hopefully from the Holy Spirit himself. And I just wanna let you know that today is one of those days where people go to church all over the nation. People go to church. They're the, the, we call them, and, and some, some pastors, we refer to them as the priesters, the people that go to church on Christmas and Easter. Because um, it's a different, different collection of attendants across the country today on Easter and on Christmas. I've already had our Christmas season, or some of you already might be anxiously looking forward to it again, already thinking through gift ideas for this coming year. But uh, it's often that on an Easter Sunday in our churches, we have a collection of people, many of whom believe Jesus and some of whom do not. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, first of all, I just want you to know you're welcome here. Amen. Totally welcome here. But I wanna make clear that Jesus is not some influential code in which to live by, but he is a risen and reigning just Lord. And he took judgment in your place today. We're gonna to talk about that today. He was killed and he was defeated. And he defeated, or he was killed and he defeated death and now he is risen and he is reigning. Earlier today, you might've seen people around you like lifting their hands, singing really, really loud, some of them on pitch, some of them off. You might have seen people with their eyes closed. You might have seen people crying even over some of the words that were being sung and some of the words that were being proclaimed as the, you know, if this is all new to you, you saw some words on a screen. The only thing absent from your childhood was like Mickey's head bouncing along. You know, you might've been like, this is like a sing-along moment. But yet when I watched Disney sing along growing up, like I didn't throw my hands in the air or weep or cry or sing real loud unless I really liked the song. Um, but today in this group of people, you might have seen that. And you might be wondering, why are they doing that? Why are people have their eyes closed? Why are people crying? Why are people singing really loud and off pitch? Don't they know that their voice isn't good? Why are people's hands raised really high? Well, listen, friends, they're not spellbound. We've not, we've not released any fumes in the air that has caused uh, uh, us to be disoriented or there, there's no hallucinogenic going on that would move them to be spellbound. It's the reality that those people are responding to a God that has saved them and they recognize that they have a great king. A lot of times the moniker used for people that follow Jesus is to be a servant and we talk about service as an activity we talk about service as a thing you do for that's mo motivated by compassion or kindness. You know, it's everything from, from uh, going the extra mile for someone or uh, opening a door. It's really easy for us in the South because we're a compassionate culture. You know, if cleaning somebody's house for them, or I remember even when I was in growing up, like we would go on service mission trips and we would like clean toilets at restaurants and do things like that for people. But to be a servant is not about an activity, it's about an awareness. See, every single one of you are servants to something because the one thing that's required for you to be a servant is to have a master. And for those of you that have a master and a king in Jesus, your servanthood isn't about activity, but it's about awareness of who's on the throne. 
And so if you're not a believer today and you wondered why hands were up, people were yelling, crying, people were yelling out loud songs, I'd like to introduce you to the God that they're worshiping today. I'd like to introduce you. And I'd like to really introduce you to the Holy Spirit that would like to introduce you to the God that they're worshiping today. And so in Luke 24, we pick up here. I want to give you a little background. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John to give you a little background on the book of Luke. Um, Luke is a Greek New Testament author. He's not Jewish. He's from the area of Antioch. And as the gospel spread from Jerusalem, the good news of Jesus, which is the word for the gospel, it's synonymous. Gospel in the, in the Greek, the word gospel is euangelion. It means good news. And so as the good news of Jesus Christ, and we're gonna talk about why it's good news in a moment, as it spread, it eventually encountered a guy named Luke. He was a doctor. And he was a part of the Antioch church. And, and investigating the story of Jesus Christ, Luke journeyed back to Jerusalem. A lot of scholars think that Luke physically sat across from Mary, Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, and took down her testimony of, if you notice, it's the only gospel that uses the birth narrative from the lineage of a female. Matthew's is through the lineage of Joseph, Jesus' earthly half-father, stepfather. Um, Luke actually talks to Mary and learns about her cousin named Elizabeth and learns about his cousin named John, Jesus' cousin named John the Baptist and all these different things. And Luke writes, the beginning of Luke chapter one, he, he writes to this, this being. We don't know if it's a real person or if it's like a type of person, but it's in the scriptures it says Theophilus and literally in the Greek, like Philo, if you know Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love. It's not just a cool moniker, but but. Philo and, Delph and, and Adelphos, like those are city of and love. Like Philo is a type of love. And so it's the city of brotherly love. That's where we get the name, the city of brotherly love from Philadelphia. Are you, you with me? You tracking? So Theophilus in Luke chapter one is who this book is written to. And Theophilus means a lover of Philo, P-H-I-L, lover of God, Theo, T-H-E-O. So it's to the God lovers out there. Maybe to a person, maybe to a type of person. Luke, the gospel of Luke that we're reading from today is part one of Luke's writing. He has a part two, if you didn't know this. It's the book of Acts. It says at the beginning, my dear Theophilus, and he continues on. And so up to this point, this is the moment till the resurrection. And then from here on, Luke's writing changes a bit, especially as it gets into the book of Acts as to not just the man of the gospel, but the mission of the gospel. So we pick up here in Luke 24. We look at the very first sentence, very first verse in verse one. It says, and they went to the tomb. And they went to the tomb. We'll have some slides come up to kind of walk us through some things here. They went to the tomb. And the first thing we, we talk about is we can't forget what happened on Friday. We can't forget what happened earlier in the week. We gathered here on Friday to celebrate Jesus's crucifixion. And that seems like a weird thing to celebrate, death. We're gonna celebrate somebody tragically dying, an innocent man who had never done any wrong, judged to be wrong in front of all of, of, the, of the Jewish culture and all of the city of Jerusalem. We're gonna celebrate his death. How, why? Why would we do that? I'm gonna give you a little backdrop on the crucifixion. If you know anything about that story, Jesus had lived 33 years of, you know, the, the Bible believers in the room would say he had lived a perfect, sinless life for 33 years. But even the bystanders in Jerusalem would have said, and that, 
that guy lives a pretty upright life. Like if anybody was a good dude, it was Jesus, okay? Like I don't know what your funeral theology is. I have never gone to a funeral in the United States where somebody doesn't talk about how good the person was that's, that's passed away, ever. They could be the most rotten guy in the world, but that's still gonna be said because we're kind, nice people and we're gonna talk about that. Oh, they're so good. You know, but nobody had any doubts at all that Jesus was a good guy. That wasn't until his ministry started when he was 30 years old that he started to come in conflict and intention with some of the religious laws and some of the religious leaders. They thought that he didn't have a right to deify himself or to start calling himself God or to heal on days like the Sabbath when they weren't supposed to work. If you've been following us along in the book of John, you know that this was a huge moment of conflict and a huge moment of tension in the story that we're reading in the gospel of John that over and over he's healing on the Sabbath and he's creating a little bit of a ruckus among the Jewish religious leaders and they're saying, you can't do that. That's not what Abraham would have wanted. And he said, no, Abraham actually would have done what I've done. Abraham would have done exactly what I've done because Abraham knew me more intimately than you did. Jesus declared himself to be God. And so this amped up uh, the, the, the sentiment among the religious leaders to just to, to see Jesus as a criminal, even though he had committed no wrongs, and to give him a criminal's death to the point that they convinced a Roman leader named Pontius Pilate to crucify him and to exchange Jesus' innocent life for a condemned killer's life, Barabbas. They said, give us Barabbas, free Barabbas, and in his place, kill and torture Jesus. And this happened leading up to his death. In Deuteronomy 22, I wanna point you to an Old Testament understanding of crucifixion says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, this is, would have been in the, the early parts of the Torah. Every Jew would have known this. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him that day for a hanged man is cursed by God. The stark reality of the crucifixion is on that tree stood and hung a man that was unbelievably cursed by God. And we're gonna explain why that's good news to us today. What did this man do? I said earlier, he was innocent. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That ultimately it's by his stripes. We, the world, not just believers, but the world might be healed, healed. Romans 5.8, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, while we were still sinners, while we were the guilty party, Jesus died for us. And he did so, I mentioned this earlier when we were talking, he did so to take on judgment for us. Growing up, I was told all, all of my life that there's gonna be a moment when I die and I face like basically God with a DVD player. For me, early on, it would have been VHS. It's, it has evolved to DVD, now, we're, now God literally, li this is gonna be a really bad pun, okay, I'm just warning you. <laughs> this is for, just, just, God lives in the cloud now, so he can stream. <laughs> he can stream everything, okay? So I told you, I warned, came with warning. 
And I've been told my whole life that I'm gonna have this moment. I die and then I'm in like this moment and everything I've ever done is put on this screen and, and you know, press play. And you know, I don't know how this would happen. It seems like that would take a lot of time for all the billions of people that have ever inhabited the planet uh, to all of their life be recounted for them, all of their life be displayed for them of the ways that they've fallen short and the ways that they've been proven guilty. And this concept of a judgment day, now, Friends, I do, I, I do know that in the scriptures it talks about facing a judgment, but here's one of the reasons that the crucifixion is really good news. Because I believe that when you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, have that moment, the only image that will be shown for our life will be a cross and a resurrection. That's it. That Jesus ex- took our judgment day 2,000 years ago. Every wedding that I do, got to recently um, do a, a mock wedding for some good friends uh, Justin and Victoria, I did was had to, got to do their real wedding and then got to do their not real wedding um, as it was displayed to a lot of our international friends on campus that maybe had never seen an American wedding and, and uh, the CSF put on just an awesome event that showcased that and it was, it was just incredible. So shout out the CSFers that helped put that event on. It's awesome. Um, a lot of you guys are here. We get to do that. And I say every wedding that I've ever done, if you've ever been to, to a wedding that I've done, I say this every single time. That wedding day is a super important day, but it's not the most important day. It's not the most important day. It's at best the second most important day of your life. Husband and wife, sometimes that takes them a little back because everything in their culture tells them that that's the most important day. But the actual most important day happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. That's the most important day in the history of the world. And that day isn't even bound to a 24-hour window because that moment happens from the moment of that cross to the moment of that resurrection. That's the most important three days that the world has ever seen. And so we see this crucifixion moment of a cursed man hanging on a tree and we ask the question, why was he cursed by God? Well, he was cursed by God for you. Amen. And he was cursed by God for me. The backdrop for the events of that crucifixion was a thing happening called the Passover. Uh, it's a Jewish ceremony, a Jewish festival. It happens every single year. It's happened for 3,000 years conservatively, potentially even longer, depending on when you date the exodus from Egypt into the promised land. Let me give you a little quick story on what the Passover is. The other night, actually, after our Good Friday service, I got to hang out with some friends um, at Justin and Victoria's house and got to hear stories of the Passover, starting a little tradition. I would encourage you guys to do that as well, to tell the story of the hope we have in the Passover, but the hope we have in the Passover lamb that is Christ. We're gonna get to that. And so this Passover story is that some... Many thousand years ago, there were a group of people that were in Egypt and they were enslaved in Egypt. They were the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, 12 tribes that had slowly come to Israel and, and or come to Egypt and looked to Egypt to be a help in a time of famine and a help in a time of drought and a help in a time of severe starvation. And they lived there for a number of years and they multiplied there and eventually a Pharaoh saw them, a leader saw them and were like, there's too many of them, we need to enslave these people. They could overthrow us if they wanted. So they started to oppress the Hebrew people and hold them down. And the Hebrew people cried out to the Lord to be saved. And God raised up a leader named Moses. And Moses went and he challenged the Pharaoh time and again to let his people go. And if you don't, God's gonna do something. He's gonna send something to you. And he sent these plagues, this number of plagues 
And they started to get increase in severity every single time. And every time the Pharaoh would allow the people of Israel to go and then he would rescind that offer. No, 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 they can't go, they can't go. And eventually it comes to the last of the plagues and Moses heard from the Lord that there would be a death angel, an angel of death that would come to Egypt in the night. And the only way that anyone would be saved would be if they took the blood of a perfect spotless lamb and they put it on the door frames of their house. Now this was a command to the Hebrew people, but it was open to any people. And so if you put the door, the blood on the doorpost of your house, then there, the, the death angel would pass over you. You with me? This is where we get this. Is where we get this. And so that night, the Hebrew people, those that believed in the Lord, they put the blood on the doorpost of their, of their home. A death angel passed over them, didn't kill anyone in their midst. But yet any house that didn't have that happen lost the firstborn son of every single family. And so Jesus was at this Passover meal with his friends. They had remembered the Lord passing over them. For our Bibles, it would say at the heading of it, it would be called the Last Supper. And Jesus was taking these items on the table from cup to bread. And he took this piece of bread and he broke it. And he said the phrase, take and eat, take and eat. I'm gonna press pause here for a moment. I've been seeing a sermon or a clip from a sermon going around the internet all week. Uh, some of you guys actually got to be in attendance to where it was preached at Together for the Gospel a couple years ago, a guy named Ligon Duncan. And he said, this was an interesting choice of verbs, take and eat. Because if we know anything about the words take and eat, the last time someone in the Bible up to this point had taken and eaten was in Genesis chapter three, verse six. It says, and the woman she took and she ate. And the taking and the eating of a fruit from a forbidden tree was the ushering in of sin for the whole world. So why was he crushed? Because we've taken and eaten the wrong things. She, the woman, took and ate. And the consequence was death for all mankind. Guilty. Paul writes in Romans 5, through one man's disobedience, Sin entered the entire world and death spread to all people. But good news, through one man's perfect obedience, all of the unrighteous might be made righteous. So when Jesus took bread and broke it, we're gonna do that at the end. We've already broken it, some little bitty squares. When Jesus took bread and broke it and said, take and eat, Here's what he was doing. This is awesome. It's kind of made me cry earlier today as I was writing this stuff down. Take and eat used to be words of condemnation. She took and she ate. They used to be condemning verbs. But in Christ, take and eat are verbs of salvation and transformation. Take and eat and remember the blood of the lamb. Let's go back to that Passover story. Why was this such a good backdrop? Because there's grace in it. Because there's grace visible in it. 
All these had gathered and remembered the Lord passing over. And, and, and all these guys sitting around the table, they were remembering the blood of the lamb signifying the angel passing over the house of their ancestors, the house of previous generations. And if you think about that story though, like I don't know how many, what percentage of people in Egypt were, were Hebrew people. I don't know what percentage it was, but it was a smaller, it definitely wasn't half. It was a smaller percentage. Could you imagine Walking out of your house the day after the angel of death had covered the city of Cairo, or covered the nation of Egypt. Could you imagine walking out and hearing the wailing in the streets of not hundreds, but probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that lost a firstborn member of their family because they didn't put the lamb on their house? Could you imagine the darkness and the despair and for those of us that have ever encountered loss, and especially loss that seems like so tragic, because you're talking about kids, and you're talking about um, you know, members of households and family, you're talking about maybe some grown adults, I guess if they were the firstborn of their family and continued to live on, it would still strike husbands and grandfathers as well. But if you're thinking about all the millions of people that likely lost their lives that day as a consequence of the Pharaoh's hard heart, if you're thinking about all those millions of people that wake up every, you know, that, or fail to wake up every single day and lose their life, you might think that death seems unfair. It's really easy to think death seems unfair. We hear news of a tragic event this weekend and we think death seems unfair. My brother-in-law passed away at 31 years old. Death seems unfair. Brian, who shared with us a couple weeks ago and will be sharing with us again next week, has a huge testimony of losing a daughter at an early age. Death seems unfair. It's tragic. It doesn't seem right. But the reality is, is because we took an eight of the first tree, death is fair. Death is fair. Death is fair. And it's happening to every single one of us. And what is unbelievably unfair is that some people might be saved. That's why Jesus is good news. Because if you're hearing this message, you can be some people. You might be some people that you believe in him. What people, you ask? What people might be saved? All who believe in Jesus. Not just might be saved, will be saved. In fact, Peter says in front of a council of people in Acts chapter four, there is no name under heaven in which people must be saved other than Jesus. And the beautiful grace of the Passover is the same grace that we live in today, except we don't have to take lamb, blood's lamb, and wipe it on our doorposts anymore. We get to stand under the blood of the slain lamb of God, Jesus, that all who believe, anybody, whosoever, might be saved. That is an unbelievably ridiculous, gracious, unfair thing that God offers to us in the condemnation of his son and cursing his son on our part and on our behalf. So what's unfair in the story is that God's grace saved them and might even save us. And a friend, I wanna just tell you, it wants to save you today if it hasn't. It does. His grace wants to save you today in the personal work of Jesus Christ, extending that grace to you. So we don't get to have today without having Friday, but we do get to have today. So let's move on to the next one. Peter leaves. 
in chapter, in verse 12, and it says that as he's walking away, he is marveling. A good Friday requires a resurrection Sunday. And so the first question I want to ask you is, do you marvel? Are you astonished at the things of Christ? Do you marvel at the story of death, burial, and resurrection? I don't, Jesus wasn't like limply laid in that tomb where he was just chilling for a couple days. He was just kind of passed out or, or you know, unconscious. Like this guy was fully dead. There's actually a little side story, a little side narrative. You were to dive into the scriptures that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, he, he denied his place in religious, you know, um, religious like notoriety in Israel and took on Jesus because he was a secret disciple. It says that in, in the gospel of John that he was a secret disciple of Jesus and he carried this person, Jesus, to a tomb. It was actually his tomb. Gave him his, was a rich man. He gave him his tomb. And in doing so, he completely became unclean for the whole Passover weekend. How do we know he became unclean? Because Jesus was dead. He wasn't like chilling. He wasn't just unconscious. He wasn't, you know, absent from, from breath or just like on a ventilator. This guy was all the way dead. Do you marvel with the fact that God raised a dead man to life? Can you imagine the journey home from Peter seeing the empty grave? Like I, that's some of the parts of scripture that I wish we had. I wish we had like a little memoir of Peter and his walk back. Like in modern day, Peter would have maybe given us like an Instagram live, you know, <laughs> or Facebook live or something. Like he would have been journeying home. Could you imagine what was going through his mind? Like he had probably had to be a number of things. He had to be, well, maybe somebody really did steal him or maybe he really did raise or like, where the heck did Jesus go? Like I've, could you imagine the circus and the gymnastics going on in his brain as he was trying to process and be astonished and marvel and be and wonder about what had transpired in and from that tomb that Sunday morning. But the good news is that Jesus didn't let him linger there very long. So in Luke 24, verse 36, we pick up, and this is, I honestly wish Kurt was telling this story because he's a much better storyteller than me and I feel like that he would do a much better job about this first verse you see in, in Luke 24, 36. As they were talking, this is the disciples, they're in a room. As they were talking about these things, in another account, it says they were locked into a room. I, mean, I believe that's John's account. They were locked into a room. As they were talking about these things, Jesus appeared and stood among them. Now, wait a minute. Like this is like next level. Like some, even you hear some traditions say he walked through the wall, you know, like he just showed up. So this guy that hadn't been in the tomb, the last time they had seen him was hanging on a cross, looking anything like himself. And the next time they see him is right here. Verse 36, they were talking and Jesus himself stood among them. He says this, peace to you. But they were startled and they were frightened and they thought they had seen a spirit. Really the word would be like a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? That is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when they had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his feet. While they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? It's like, I'm glad you guys are freaked out about this, but I've been hungry. I've been like hanging out for three days, not having any food. You got anything to eat? I love that. They gave, it's like to my own heart, Jesus. Jesus is a foodie. They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then I want you to, if you underline verses in your Bible, I want you to underline verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay, now there's a lot we could talk about there, but I'm gonna do something that's a little awkward, maybe a little out of the ordinary for us. But notice that it says in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures or to understand who he was. It means a couple things for us. First of all, it means that logic wasn't gonna cut it. So logic is not a pathway to salvation. You don't reason or argue anyone into believing in Jesus. The second thing is that good deeds aren't gonna cut it. They're not a pathway to salvation. He says understanding and understanding that's gifted to you by Jesus is how people come to the understanding or come to the knowledge or come to the recognition that he is exactly who he says he is. So there's a, there's a really important piece right here that salvation never occurs unless God gifts us understanding. And so I just wanna do something here that's not normal, like not normal sermon structure or sermon strategy. But I just want us to pause. And I want us to pray that there are, there are people in our life and there might even be people sitting next to you. You don't have to pray out loud, okay? There might even be people sitting next to you that you have a hope come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's definitely probably people in your family. There's definitely probably people in your, your friend circles, in your workplaces, in your neighborhood that you hope come to a saving understanding of things in Jesus. And there might even be people that you brought with you in church today. And I just wanna pause and give us a moment to pray just silently to ourselves that God open the minds and give understanding that they might see him because salvation doesn't happen unless that happens. And so we're just gonna make a, a, a little moment here and I'm gonna ask that you pray for yourself or for someone else that he opened their mind to understand, to see him, to stop wondering and to be welcome to know Jesus. He doesn't want to clean them up or to get them perfect or to have them understand all the logic. He, he just wants to welcome them to understand who he is. And so I'm just going to step back in a pause and invite you, pray for someone in your life, someone that you know, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker, um, someone that you've just had a random interaction with, or maybe someone that's with you today, that the Holy Spirit would move their heart to understand the things of Christ. So bow your heads with me. Pray that to yourself. Actually, I'll start, I'll, then I'll pause, and then I'll close this out. Father, we just submit this moment to you, and we pause, and we ask you in the lives of specific people that we're about to request to you to give the understanding of who you are.
Thank you, Jesus, for hearing us. Thank you for going before us. Thank you for ministering, um, ministering to the, those that you want to see belief blossom and bloom in their life. Father, we just pray for those in our midst, for those in this room, maybe they don't have a relationship with you, that your spirit does the work of giving their minds to understand, opening their minds, opening their hearts to understand. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear who you are. Not, not who Andrew says you are. Holy Spirit, you speak to who they are. You created them. You formed them. You know them. You know every hair on their head. You know everything about them. Jesus, we, we ask you. The lives of those people in our life, or even in this room, that don't believe, we ask you, we beg you to open their heart and open their mind to understanding who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The last little thing he says is you are witnesses of these things. I love um, the prayer in John 20, 21 and 22. This is so much the theme of the book of John, but Jesus says in the same setting, John authors it this way, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, he uses the term, you are witnesses. You are witnesses to these things. You know, a lot of times we feel like we have to be Jesus's advocate. We gotta defend him. We also have to like make sure he's attractive, you know, we have to like do everything we can to produce this desire for people to come to Jesus or know everything to defend him. And the Bible doesn't ask us to be Jesus' advocate. He says the Holy Spirit is that actually in John chapter 13, 14, and 15. He says that he's the helper. We aren't supposed to be Jesus' advocate. We're supposed to be witnesses. Do you know the word witness in the New Testament is the word martyr? It's the same word. Now we have the connotation of martyrdom now because of a guy named Stephen. Martyr didn't always mean death. It became death when Stephen was martyred, when he was a witness for Christ to the point that it cost him his life. We're gonna end on, on that story a bit. And so the question is, if you're not to be Jesus' advocate, if you're just to be his witness, then what has he done for you? Amen. What has he done? And are you a witness of that? Do you stand and give account for that? And the trial that is the world and the trial that is your life, do you give account for what he's done for you, for being a witness to his grace and his power and his transforming work in your life. I've told you some things today that he's done for you. He went to a cross and he was raised to new life. But if you don't have an answer to that question today, then it's maybe, maybe likely that you were the subject of somebody's prayer earlier, like a minute ago. If you don't have a question of what, or answer to the question of what has Jesus done for you, I would love to help you find one today. Kurt would love to help you find one. Steve in the back would love to help you find one. Butch right here with Zach would love to help you find one. We'd love anybody. The person that brought you would love to help you find an answer to that today. And I also want to refer or reinforce the fact that if you're a witness, you're also a sent person. You're a good news person. Who doesn't like being a good news person? Nobody likes being a bearer of bad news. Friday dealt with the bad news. Sunday deals with really, really good news. Sin doesn't stick. We have victory. Belief is enough. 
like Kurt mentioned on our Good Friday service, just lift your head and see Jesus high and lifted up. And that's powerful enough to draw all men unto himself. Seriously, believing in Jesus is enough. It's crazy. That's like the scandal of God's grace. Just believing that what he did on Friday applies to you is enough. And it applies to you right where you are. You don't have to be cleaned up for it to apply. You, don't, you might love the better version of yourself. Jesus doesn't. Like when I look in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, I could use to drop a few pounds. I could maybe update my wardrobe. Like I could do some things. I could fix my hair. I like a better version of me. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like a better version of themselves? There's one person that doesn't like a better version of you any better than the current version of you, and that's Jesus. He doesn't. He, you know what you're bad at, don't you? You know your failures and your shortcomings. You even know some of the places that you're good. You definitely know the places that you're average, just like middle of the road, kind of status quo. You know all those things. God doesn't need you to, to, be, to be good or cleaned up or presentable for him to love you. He wants to love you right where you are. He is not ashamed of you. Somebody needs to hear that today. He is not ashamed of you. You might be, you might be ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. Hebrews chapter two, it says that he is both the work of justice and the justifier. And because of that, he's not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. He's not ashamed. How do I know that he's not ashamed of you? Because the cross says so. There's a lot of ways that people can say God loves you, but the way the Bible says God loves you is that cross. Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated, he displayed his love. And when we were still sinners, he died. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a sent person, you're a witness. And we're gonna end with this. This last little point at the bottom, you might not be able to see it, but it says from Marvel, which is what Peter was doing to martyrdom. Listen, if Jesus was like a weak, limp, measly, barely resuscitated person that crawled out of the grave and showed up in this room with these, with these apostles, I don't think I would have been convinced. Like imagine the scene, like pale-skinned, feeble, like maybe hemorrhaging blood in different places, like maybe big bloody patches on his clothes and, you know, like kind of barely making it in and even kind of framing the conversation. Do you have anything to eat? Like I haven't had, I need some nourishment. Like if that was the picture of Jesus, I don't know that I would take the world by storm. I might be like, eh, my savior kind of looks disparaged. He kind of looks a little weak. So think about the interaction between Jesus and these guys, that their response to seeing him resurrected was to give of their absolute life for the glory of God. Like this wasn't like a, maybe they should, maybe they should go. Like the apostle Thomas was martyred in South India. That's a long way to walk from Israel. I don't know if you're aware of that. That's a long way to walk. Why was he there? Because he was taking the gospel. He was killed by a mob. Kurt's been to the, to the spot that he was killed in southern India. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, was held off the top of the temple. He came to faith, wasn't a believer in Jesus, didn't see him as Messiah, came to faith after the resurrection, was held over the edge of the temple and said, you will recant that Jesus is the Messiah or we're gonna drop you to your death. And he starts praying for him. 
He gets dropped. This is all in Fox's Book of Martyrs if you want some background. He, he gets dropped. He shatters both of his legs. It's probably a 40 or 50 foot drop. Shatters both of his legs. Is left there bleeding out in the courtyard, praying over the people that were persecuting him to the point that he was, had his head bashed in but with, a big, with a big hammer from the crowd. Why did he do that? Because his resurrected king was convincing. He wasn't a measly, weak, limp you know, wimpy little king that crawled in there and had, you know, no blood in his skin and bloodshot eyes. Like he was a standing, victorious, reigning king. And he said, go be my witnesses to the world. And they're like, oh yeah, yes, sir. I'm on. I'm, I'm for this. Why was Peter crucified, uh, crucified and persecuted? Why was Paul persecuted? Why was John um, dipped in a vat of oil and sent in exile to live the rest of his life in islands because, and on this island called Patmos because they had seen a resurrected king. They didn't marvel anymore. They witnessed about him and they witnessed about him to the end of their life. If he wasn't a convincing resurrected king, I don't think I would have gone and given my life for that guy. But if I saw this guy dead and I saw him walk through a locked door and say, oh, this, (laughs) touch it, it's real. Oh, Messiah, oh yeah, that's good. Uh, Do you have any fish? I would love some. You know, like if we had, and then, and then he said to them, I'm gonna send you in the world in the same, what, what couldn't I take on? What couldn't I be victorious over? What couldn't I conquer? And so the light, living in light of the resurrection is both acknowledging that you were the subject of Good Friday, but you get to become, your sin was the subject of Good Friday, but you could become the mission and the object of his mission for the rest of the world because of Sunday. That you are sent. No longer people that marvel, but people that are martyred and people that witness. And our final slide just has two phrases on it. It says this, take and eat. Because the first time we did was for our condemnation. This time, it's in our salvation and our transformation. If you're not a believer in Jesus today, we invite you to take and eat from Christ himself. Come pray with me, pray with one of us. Meet some of us in the back, some of us up here. Pray with one of us and say you wanna come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're you're already a believer, you go to the table, take, eat, and remember, take and eat. But then the second part is also true for all of us. We don't just remember by taking and eating, we participate by going and telling. That there are people in this city, there are people from in this state, there are people in this country, there are people in the whole world Jesus said this himself. Repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, to all people. How does that happen? Because we're people that go and tell. When we live in light of the resurrection, we understand that take and eat are verbs of salvation, not condemnation. And go and tell are the verbs of mission that we're invited to be on because of the good news we have in Jesus Christ. So friends, stand with me today. Pray with me today. Take and eat, and then go and tell.